Amen. You may be seated. Please turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. We'll be looking at a lengthier passage of Scripture this morning, covering the end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, all the way to the end of chapter 8, verse 35. This brings to a conclusion the narrative of Gideon. Man that I've uh, enjoyed studying and and honoring, and so far we've viewed the judges as almost entirely positive. We've taken the interpretive lens from Hebrews chapter eleven verse thirty-two, viewing these men as exemplars of faith. Um, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, and Gideon all called to lead the Israelites in military conquests against their oppressors, and God. Granted all of them success, miraculous success. And yet, unfortunately, and it's with a heavy heart when we come to the end of Gideon's life, because there's really no excusing much of what he did. Uh, Yes, God clothed him with the Spirit and used him to deliver Israel from the hands of Midian, but at some point along the way, Gideon stumbled, and he stumbled very significantly. I think the principle I want us to consider this morning from this passage is that those whom God has accepted, whom God has effectually called, and who are being sanctified by the Lord... As our confession puts it in chapter 17, section 1, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. Okay, there's a, an assurance there for those whom God has accepted, effectually called, and sanctified. And yet we still come to these examples of faithful saints of God who fall into grievous sins. And so in just a few sections later in that same chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, so chapter 17, section 3 says that we should never underestimate the power of temptation, of our remaining corruption, and of the means of our preservation. Right? That we can not underestimate the power of temptation that surrounds us, the remaining corruption that is within us, and to neglect the means of grace that God has given to preserve our faith. Right? Once we underestimate that, either the power, the external power, or the internal corruption, or, or begin to neglect the means of grace that God has supplied, that is exactly how we fall into grievous sins, as Gideon, as we'll see, Gideon did. Before we read, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, that you would soften our hearts to respond to this in some way, that that we ourselves might, might feel the weight of this sin because of our own corruption, of our own proneness to wander away. Maybe we're in that state now. Maybe we are in the middle of that struggle and that fight. Lord, we trust in you to cause us to persevere. And we, for this very purpose, be strengthened in our faith. 
to be edified. So speak to us through your word this morning. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, beginning in Judges chapter 7, verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as beth Bera, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth Bera, and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They <clears throat> then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that, you, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herod. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, there, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, are you, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. 
Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, every one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that, was, that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel poured after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Amen. This is God's holy word. I'm going to divide this just into two sections here. This opening section detailing the defeat of the enemy. Defeating the enemy from 724 through 821. And it begins with Ephraim's defeat of the princes of Midian. Ephraim is called out for the first time to be in this battle, and they take offense to that, and they complain. Right, Ephraim goes out, though, and they control the water courses, and they put to death the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And then they complain about this late notice. There's a bit of a power trip here be- between the uh, Ephraimites and and uh, Gideon, which is, he's part of the tribe of the Manasseh, Manassites, or Manasseh. He's specifically of the family of Abiezer, the Abiezrites in Ophrah, but that was within the tribe of Manasseh. So there's a power struggle here between Ephraim and Manasseh. And how does Gideon respond? They accused him fiercely, but he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? He, he encourages them. He says, God's used you in a mighty way. In fact, he's even given the princes into your hands. I'm still chasing people. You're actually capturing people. You're getting the reward. 
God's used you. God's blessed you. And so he gives them, he, he calms them with this kind word. And so right off the bat, what are we to think about this conflict between Ephraim and Gideon? Dale Ralph Davis says this, Sometimes the people of God are a great disappointment. If you don't know that, you may not survive the church. Don't allow God's people to disillusion you. At least be prepared for it. Be prepared to be offended by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be prepared to be greatly disappointed by one another. It's inevitable. It happens in every church. You can't get away from it. And so we disappoint one another all the time. And Gideon's soft answer is an example to us. Right? He turns away the wrath of Ephraim's complaint with this soft answer as Proverbs 15.1 teaches us to do. You've got to pray for that kind of spirit, that humility that would respond to someone who's fiercely accusing you in humility and with a gentle answer. And then we go on to this next section, which is lengthier, but it tells of Gideon defeating the kings of Midian. He, there's a, a couple of things that, in this section. You have Succoth and Penuel denying support to Gideon's army. Gideon and his 300 men are, have, have begun traveling, chasing after uh, the remaining troops that haven't slaughtered one another. And 120,000 of them have, have killed one another and there remains 15,000 of them on the run with 300 pursuing. Even when he calls out the reserves as he did at the end of chapter 7, he hasn't combined forces. He hasn't joined his 300 with those tribes, which probably is you know, tens of thousands of people. He still remains with his 300 troops that God has told him uh, to fight with. And so Succoth and Penuel, they deny their support to Gideon and his army. They refuse to offer bread to, their, to his exhausted men. And they say, you know, they're self-preserving at this point. If they, if they support Gideon and his army, then Zeba and Zalmunna are going to turn those 15,000 troops right, on to, right back to them and destroy them. And so out of self-preservation, they deny the support Gideon requests. And so as any good commander-in-chief would do, Gideon tweets his outrage in all caps. Actually, that's not in the text. They didn't have Twitter back then, so he's doing it in a different way. Here, Gideon eventually chases and captures Zeba and Zalmunna, and he comes back to settle the score. And this is where we come into some challenging, um, it's challenging to defend him at this point. I think he begins to foreshadow his son Abimelech, which we'll see very clearly in the next chapter, uh, was not a man who was praising and serving the Lord in his reign. He starts off here by torturing 
the leaders of Succoth. He gets all of the names of these men and he teaches them a lesson. It doesn't say that he kills them, although the suffering here that he inflicts is probably more severe than our ESV translation might indicate. It says, he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars and with them taught, a men, taught the men of Succoth a lesson. You might have this image of people whipping him with thorns, people whipping, you know, Gideon whipping 77 men with, with a, a branch or something of some kind. But um, the language could be interpreted as well as him taking a threshing sledge over the men, lying them down in thorns and, and threshing them. Uh, if, if not killing them, definitely bringing them to the brink of death. This is no light punishment. And then he does kill the men of Penuel, breaking down the tower, killing the men of the city. So he, and, and then lastly, and then we'll come back to this, but he, he does come to Zeba and Zalmunna and he begins to address them directly, and, and it's clear that he's getting vengeance upon them. He, in fact, he says, if you hadn't killed my brothers, I wouldn't kill you. Well, this is all new to us. We've never heard of this kind of background. God doesn't bring this into the account. He, he just tells him to, to go and defeat his enemies. But here now he's brought in a personal vendetta against Zeba and Zalmunna. And he calls his son to kill them. Um, and his son responds much like Gideon did in the beginning, right? With hesitation. He's not ready to do this. He's a young man. And so Gideon does it himself. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that we, we do, we can give God praise for the capture and the slaughter of Israel's enemies. In, in Psalm 83, verse 11 it says, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Right? He's, this, uh, the psalmist here is, is calling, and this is the psalm of Asaph, calling for the death of God's enemies just like Oreb and Zeb were slaughtered and Zeba and Zalmunna. So this doesn't, what happens isn't the challenge here, but it's, it's Gideon's, tr- not to, to, their in- to his enemies, not how he treats Zeba and Zalmunna. It's how he treats the men of Succoth and Penuel. That's the most troublesome. Because remember how the angel of the Lord had called Gideon. In chapter 6, verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian, do not I send you. He is giving him this confidence to go and to fight Midian. This, this attack upon Succoth and Penuel is, is never called for. He was sent to save Israel, and instead we find Gideon torturing and killing Israelites. What went wrong? How could he make such a drastic mistake? Maybe mistakes, a mischaracterization of it because he's very methodical in his exacting revenge upon them. 
Yes, Succoth and Penuel were selfish. They were inhospitable. They feared God's enemy more than they feared God. And yet, they weren't the enemies. They were part of the covenant people. And I do not believe Gideon had the authority or the uh, encouragement or the leading from the Spirit to do what he did. And that leads us to a question. Had the Spirit of the Lord left him at this point? It's, it's worth considering because there hasn't been any dialogue with God, no activity of the Spirit for quite some time. Go back to chapter 6, verse 23. You see then Gideon, uh, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him. And verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And verse 36, then Gideon said to God. So there's this dialogue back and forth between Gideon and God and the Spirit clothing him. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. And he's asking, you know, he's still in this fleece test. Chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, people with you are too many. He dwindles down the army. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, people are still too many. He's continuing to communicate to him exactly what he's to do. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Once again, nothing about his having to fight his own people. And then in verse 9, that same night the Lord said, arise, go down. So that's the last we hear of Gideon dialoguing with the Lord. Verse 9 of chapter 7. And he receives the victory very miraculously, or at least a, a significant portion of the victory. 120,000 of the 135,000 have been wiped out by themselves. And now he's mopping up, he's finishing up the work. And so it would seem that in his response here, in his turning against Succoth and Penuel, that he's beginning to neglect the means of God's preservation. As the confession mentions in chapter 17. That they've begun, he's begun to neglect the means of preservation. What was that? It was the open communication and dialogue that he has had with God throughout. And the guidance of the Spirit. The dependence he had upon the Spirit's leading. He now seems to be acting on his own. He's become presumptuous of the Lord's favor rather than continually leaning upon him. And so the big picture here, the, the grand, in the grand scheme of things, what we are to see here is that ultimately we need a better judge than Gideon, right? We need a judge who would, not in, who would be willing to endure suffering, not inflict it, right? So Gideon's retirement serves ultimately as a failed picture of leaving a legacy because he goes on from there to what, I, what can only be described as, as even greater sins. And I, and I think it's mixed here with some good intentions. This, this is another section that, that we see some positive things, just like we saw in his response to Ephraim, right, something to be commended. We'll see some of that here in his initial response to the request for him to be king. Right? They, 
he rejects that request to be Israel's king. And the question is, is he being noble there or is he showing some kind of false humility? I, I do think he's attempting to speak what he knows to be true, that the Lord is your king. He, he lives in a house, not a palace. According to verse 29, right, he retired living in his own house. And yet, his influence was significant from this ephod that he sets up. Gideon, verse 27, Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and, became a sna- and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So he has a significant influence that people are wanting to follow what he does. He's giving them an example. So what is this ephod? Well, he takes what amounts to about at least 43 pounds of gold. And that's, you can continue to add to that the, um, the collars that he took from the camel's necks and the pendants and purple garments that were worn by the kings of Midian. All this, this gold that's been added to the 1,700 shekels of gold earrings. And it's anywhere from 43 to 75 pounds of gold here that he's used to create an ephod. What is an ephod? You've got to turn back to Exodus chapter 28. These are the priestly garments that God tells Moses to instruct Aaron and his brothers to make for themselves as priests. He says this, and they shall bind the breast, piece, uh, the breast piece on or by its rings to the rings of the ephod with the lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord, and in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Quite a significant piece of the garments of the priests here. The ephod represents. Uh, moving forward to 1 Samuel chapter 23, we do have a picture here of David significantly relying upon the ephod specifically. He says when, uh, in 1 Samuel 23 verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So Abiathar is bringing this ephod, Abiathar being a priest, comes down with an ephod into his hand, bringing it to David. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him and said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? 
Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. So what is he doing here? He's He's got the ephod and he's coming to it for direction and he's using it as a, as a resource to cry out to God for guidance. Right? He's, he's using it in the, for the means in which it was meant. He's depending upon a priest to give him direction. Where he might, so through him, through this priest, he might call upon the Lord. Again, we see the same thing happening in chapter 30 verses 7 through 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So the principle is that what David is doing here is, is, is not condemned. In fact, he's getting direction from the Lord, and he's doing this process throughout to show his dependence upon the Lord. There's nothing wrong in this, uh, what, at least on the surface of what Gideon is doing here. Because it would appear that to be similar to what David has done. But the problem comes in the text of Judges itself, where we read that after he makes this ephod, all Israel hoard after it there at languages of a false worship. They're whoring after it there, and it has become a snare to Gideon and to his family. So this image that's been set up has really become an idol. And the idea that's ensnared Gideon would indicate to me that Gideon intended it to be used in this way. Or at least he fell into the same exact sin. It might have started up with good intentions, but it didn't end there. This idolatrous worship ultimately led back to Baal worship immediately following Gideon's death. As we've seen time and time again, as soon as a judge dies, the people fall back into worshiping the idols of their neighbors. So Gideon's come full circle. He began by destroying idolatry in Ophrah, and then he ends by establishing idolatry in Ophrah. Isn't that remarkable? Gideon was an inconsistent leader. He had a public persona that in the end did not match his private practice. That wasn't always the case, but at the end of his life, that is true. He acts like a secular king, and as Deuteronomy chapter 17 spells out in verses 14 through 17, he breaks many of the things that God said the kings of Israel should never do. He's ruthless toward the Israelites. He has a personal vendetta against his enemies rather than just exacting justice. He justifies his actions as royal assassinations. He makes ridiculous demands of his son. He establishes this creative approach to worship that was clearly outside of his calling. He was not a priest, even if he you know, was, was, had good intentions to begin with. It ends up ensnaring his own family. He, he establishes a harem of wives. He names his son Abimelech, translated as, my father is king. 
you can't, you can't get around that, right? That's a, it's a common non-Israelite name. My father is king. So he says, no, I don't want to be your king. The Lord God is your king. Have you met my son? Oh, yeah, what's your son's name? My father is king. It's kind of ironic and hypocritical. And he expects his son to succeed him. So this is the beginning of a, a growing desire among the Israelites that will come to fruition in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it's why we come to the end of Gideon's life, and, and I've called it an unfitting end, because it hasn't been what he has shown up to this point. He just sort of falls apart. And it serves, I think, as a warning to leaders. Right? Because oftentimes our greatest weakness is pride. As, as Matt pointed out in Sunday school this morning, it's, it's pride that underlies much of the sin and wickedness that we see. And we exchange the Lord's leading with our own agenda. So history has often proved that the external temptation of power combined with the internal temp, uh, corruption of pride makes for a deadly combination. So we cannot underestimate either of those, the out external temptation and the internal corruption. We cannot underestimate those things. And Gideon's public statement is commendable, but it's impossible to believe when you read what followed. He said one thing and did another. And what good is a theology that has no impact upon our practice? And yet all of us, I think, can sympathize to Gideon's struggle here. That we can confidently declare what our theology teaches and, and then find it very difficult to live a life that is consistent with that theology. Gideon's example exhorts us to lay aside our sinful pride and to, pre to persevere by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we read in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." So Gideon's defeat of the enemy is mixed up with a disturbing scene of his torturing fellow Israelites. It's evidence of Gideon's neglect of the means of God's preservation. And then fresh into retirement, his public statements fly in the face of his actions so that his legacy will gain even another exhibit next week as we look at his son, Abimelech. As believers... We have been accepted by God. We have been effectually called by him. And we've been sanctified and are being sanctified by God. And yet we can never underestimate the power of temptation and our remaining corruption and the means of our preservation. We can never under, underestimate the need we have for those means of grace in our lives. And so we can appreciate Gideon's faith as we have done throughout this narrative, and now we can learn from his flaws. 
but we must look to Jesus alone to find rest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.